I'm Robert Fenner. And I'm Alvatrua, and I play games to aid dissociation because life is terrible. That's, um, you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, you're listening to Misanthroplay. Uh, we're here. We're sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, it's been a little while since we recorded. Uh, it really has. Um, uh, a lot of things going on. In the meantime, uh, I hope you've been listening to uh, Rob's new podcast, Misspent Views. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah I hope you have too. Um, it is good. I'm talking to people about the first games they played and how they got into the medium, uh, and it's it's gay as hell. So. And I tell embarrassing stories about myself in one episode. Yes, mm-hmm. so absolutely check out Alva's episode, which is episode three. Uh, but enough about me. We are talking about tabletop and how it relates to video games today. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that you're much more acquainted with than I am. Well, I guess, uh, you know, as with a lot of misanthropy play stuff, I'm going to lead in with a bit of a personal experience story. By which all is, means. Uh, which is how I got into to gaming, uh, computer gaming and tabletop gaming, kind of simultaneously. Uh, and I'm going to start by showing a picture of one of these Steve Jackson pocket box games. Which is a uh, which had an immediate appeal to me. Um, we'll we'll trample one of these in the show notes. Yeah, you'll have to send this to me so yeah, the people at home can exactly. see. Oh, look at this! Wow, undead. It's yeah. uh, looks like Dracula and the Wolfman. And who who set up? Is that Rasputin? Uh, very possibly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So so these these are Steve Jackson pocket bot games. I'll try and uh, engage the theater of the mind here and describe it. Um, they were sold in um, well the posh department store. Um, that sold vi- video games when I was a kid. Sold them in the sort of elite kind of um, games section, which had like polished, expensive backgammon boards, uh, fancy chess boards, and uh, video game consoles like the Intellivision and uh, the Atari. Oh, television's coming back. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and they had big bookcase uh, tabletop games and these little plastic boxes. Um, which were Steve Jackson's pocket box games. And they, I later learned, and you could kind of tell at the time, were kind of working with the aesthetic of a video game cartridge. Mm. They, they were about the size of a VHS tape. They had this sort of like textured, um, rough pla- plastic edging, colorful illustrations, like the one I just showed to Rob, and definitely had this sort of like feel of like, this is like a video game cartridge. They they even came with like series of games uh, with expansions, and if you look at the uh, the games in this context, the way the expansions like kind of like are laid out pretty much fits you know your idea of a game and its expansions. You're getting add-ons for this colorful thing. Mm. Um, Before I embarrass myself, we're mm-hmm. talking about American Steve Jackson, correct? Uh, we are talking about American Steve okay. Jackson, not yeah. British Steve Jackson. Yes, that that that, that bewildered me for years and oh, years. I only found out when we talked about it in whatever episode we talked about it yeah i found out about it not long before then because <laughs> I, I was confused especially because one steve jackson was making tabletop games another steve, another steve jackson was making um uh game books and it's like they're not a world apart no so, not at all so it was easy to assume they were the same person because you know putting their name out there yeah, it's like here look we're making something for you and your friends and we're making something for the person who has no friends <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> which uh, we'll get into my experience with tabletop in a little bit oh but, yes uh, yeah l- l- please do <laughs> that. As, as as you were saying mm. so um so I, I bought uh, one of these games. Uh, I looked at the one that had the most appeal to me, and it was Car Wars. Mm. Um, you know, catchy name for the time, uh, and the idea of like car combat. 
uh, you know, kind of sci-fi was quite appealing. And I picked it up, and it has all these little, like, kind of, like, colored tokens of cars and stuff in it. But also, what it came with was the Origin Systems catalog. And the Origin Systems catalog was for Origin Systems games, which... I believe we've mentioned in the past episode, but I think in our '80s RPGs episode, right? Uh, yeah, because uh, Origin Systems because they did Ult- Ultima, right? Did they, they did, publish it? They did Ultima. Yeah, uh, they soon got bought by Electronic Arts, unfortunately. Mm, and that's why their system is Origin now. Uh, I guess I that gives would them the right assume. to assume. Yeah, 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 I suppose so. Although nobody really looks at Origin and thinks anything other than, "Ugh, why do I have to?" <laughs> why can't I just do Steam? <laughs> yeah, which is like you know kind of problematic that we have uh, thinking. It's anyway, good to have other marketplaces but not one that's owned by electronic arts necessarily yeah yeah and not one that's like kind of been a bit bad to use historically go visit itch.io folks uh yeah please please um i mean even gog although like that's still a corporate entity it is yeah so so yeah um well the association again between something like like computer rpgs and tabletop comes from this sort of intellectual appeal of the tech- technological like i said you walk into a department store and they're there with video games they're there with like kind of like posh parlor games the idea being you're a smart person this is your smart pastime you know it's not like you're actually <laughs> sitting in a greasy basement uh mm. like that's poorly lit moving these cardboard chits around no that's not what you're doing or you're not like you know in fact an 11 year old um you know you're an intellectual person um and uh, you're here and you are valid (laughs) absolutely that probably like led to some of my misguided upbringing but anyway the origin systems catalog so it was this colorful um catalog that had images of all these different games the ultima games were were in there with Mm. uh all of their rpg systems and uh there was auto duel auto duel being the the computer adaptation of the Car Wars game. So this is the only thing related to Car Wars that I have any experience with. I have downloaded a I downloaded some abandonware of Auto okay. Duel maybe fifteen years ago and had a very difficult time getting it to run in DOSBox, but um spent, yeah. spent a little bit of time with it. It's a really, really I mean even It's old. <laughs> it is very, very old. Even at the time I had serious trouble playing it when I did mm-hmm. eventually get my hands on it. Um I used to get my dad to uh, play the poker game because my dad was real good at video poker. Uh, I didn't know the rules of video poker at all, so I'd drive to Atlantic City in Auto Duel, um, and I'd get my dad to play poker for like, like you know, a while, and then I'd get all this money that I'd spend to buy the best car, which I'd then immediately destroy, <laughs> and then get my dad to play poker again. <laughs> yeah, this, um, I think we might have talked about this in that in that very episode. Okay, uh, it's reminded me of like how I learned to play blackjack so I could beat Leisure Suit Larry one. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I I did not learn poker until way later. I think, you know, I think I didn't really have a grasp of the rules of poker until Tales of the Abyss. Wow, in like okay. two thousand six. There's, I I didn't. Uh, I've only partly played Tales of the Abyss. I didn't know there was poker in that. Oh, game. it's it's very near the end. You get to a casino where you can play uh, poker and you can also play Dragon Buster. Okay, what's Dragon Buster? Dragon Buster was a classic Namco arcade game where you ran around in a dungeon whacking dragons with a sword. Okay, right. Yeah. I hear that's what Elon Musk does to his uh, workers. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, okay. <laughs> sorry, that's a terrible, terrible joke. Um, just, I was trying to come up with a rejoinder about Grimes being shitty, but yeah, no, that's low-hanging fruit. It really is. There's no, no need for that anymore. Um, send him to Mars. Send him both to Mars. Yeah. 
so <clears throat> so yeah that was the the dad uh, auto duel video uh, video game loop you know 30 mm. seconds of fun um <laughs> but so there was this very real sense that if you were into video games you would also be into tabletop games or vice versa um especially considering it was mostly rpgs primarily mm. rpgs in this origin catalog and what that made you think about was well all of these are games where you're trying to use these systems to recreate a world to recreate these scenarios D&D is just like a really complex uh, tactical simulation to begin with I mean it was originally designed as an offshoot of a war game there wasn't really any role playing in D&D when it was first conceived of and the point of having a, a referee or a GM games master was just so that you'd have someone who would handle all the rules impartially and keep track of all of the uh, figures and statistics. More of an administrator than a storyteller uh, yeah, in those basically. early days. And what you were getting out of computer games was, oh hey, I can play one of these um, you know, fantasy tactical games or a role-playing game without uh, a GM, and the computer's my GM. Mm -hmm. So so that's where... It, it's almost a necessity that, that sort of drove these. And if you... You know, if you were intent on recreating these scenarios, you went to one of these two things. And if you didn't have friends, um, you know, or you were a shy kid or teenager, then computer games are way more appealing. Feeling attacked right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm a shy adult, you know. So. Yeah, well, that makes that makes two of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was fascinated by the idea of tabletop games and role-playing games as a kid. Um I would often see like the big boxes for Steve Jackson games in uh, comic book stores, mm. and um, I remember uh, having some spending money at um, Mid Americon. I think it was no, is that the Worldcon? Then there was a there's a science fiction convention that takes place in Kansas City every year, uh, and I remember my mom and I went together uh, shortly after my parents got divorced, and I remember buying like. Cyberpunk, Cyberpunk 2020 rule book mm. and uh, some GURPS books and like pouring over those and like learning all about those systems but you know because I was eight or nine years old in Kansas there wasn't anybody else who wanted to do this mm -hmm. so um, I would uh, I would get very very acquainted with these systems and fascinated by them and just lament that I didn't have anybody to play them with mm -hmm. so um, you're you're are you smirking? Is there uh, something you're going to say? Uh, no, I'm not smirking. I'm smirking because this is like pretty much the exact experience I had for a lot of my time. So, okay. <laughs> so yeah, I, I yeah. get the impression that this is a like I, I've heard people on other podcasts like, like mention this as an aside as in like yeah, this was my experience as a child. <laughs> These gaming systems, I, I read a lot of stuff, maybe bought a lot of stuff, and didn't actually play anything. Oh, I knew all about the Halloweeners and the Five Eyers in mm. in Shadowrun and the Inquisitors and mm -hmm. Cyberpunk and and Johnny Silverhand and oh, Morgan God, Blackhand. Silverhand, yeah. <laughs> Johnny Silverhand used Always to piss me off. Edge. Used to piss me off so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I knew all about that stuff and just lamented that I didn't have anybody to play with. Mm. Um, I remember uh, I, um, my friend Jonathan uh, talked about this a little bit in the in episode two of Misspent Youth that like he managed to uh, do this through like AOL chat rooms and IRC. Mm -hmm. And I did a little bit about I did a little bit of that, but by that time I was like an awkward shy teenager who mm -hmm. didn't really feel comfortable doing that either. Mm -hmm. So really like you know computer role-playing games allowed me to have this um automated gm and well of course you know there are limitations because like storytelling is endless when you have a real gm and that's what makes tabletop so 
exciting and enticing. Um, but I don't know, just that, that fascination with that type of immersive role-playing storytelling, um, but, you know, not having anybody else who was into it was really what kind of cemented RPGs as, as my favorite sort of genre for a really, really long time. Um, it, it was pretty much the same thing with me. I did like games with like complicated tactics games like Battletech, which oh. I'll, I'll get into, and, and Car Wars, which I mentioned mm-hmm. at the very start of this episode. Um, and there was something about um, getting familiar with the world, like a level of world building that you'd engage with that at that time I mean like now we can go to a wikia mm-hmm. um, yeah, and uh, we can look up like fan pages and find all the source material on anything you know we happen to take interest in and yet yeah. it's not quite the same mm-hmm. you know I mean uh, that's like kind of like obsessive archiving and while it is interesting mm-hmm. it's not really the same as like them you know a, a authored or put together like guidebook or story bible you uh, know because it's, it's very it's mm. very sterile mm. um i mean you're removed from you're removed from the original author as well yeah and although like we don't want to put too much importance on like you know a single voice in creating these things author. but yeah but you still kind of like uh you have like a less less of that feel mm-hmm. because this is like now become like a like a community community driven archive as you say mm. as opposed to like a specifically like engineered kind of like you know work written for a specific kind of flow and stuff which you get from these source books and there there yeah. is value to having the online archive but it feels like a little bit in in, in the way that web 2.0 tends to it feels like a little bit of the magic is lost mm, absolutely and uh, and so i'd immerse myself in these these games and yeah. and uh, the fact that there were stats really added to this experience even though, if you think about it, I mean, it's kind of absurd. I used to read a lot of the Palladium role-playing system uh, mm-hmm. source books. They, they did all the Robotech stuff. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I had one of those. And because I was a fan of Macross and Robotech, that was amazing. Because they, they'd actually taken some illustrations out of out of the uh, Japanese, like, uh, like Bibles and visual, like, uh, kind of guidebooks for, mm. for, for Macross. And it was brilliant to see those line that line art and those illustrations, but also to see extrapolations of what their uses were and like maybe some like variants people would come up with, uh, as well as the stats, which were really really dumb. The Palladium <laughs> rolling uh, system had um, two systems of damage. It had structural damage and mega damage. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. So you you and one mega damage point was worth one structural damage was worth a hundred structural damage points oh it's like uh it, it's like the two damage systems in um resonance of fate oh yeah remember that did you play resonance of fate I never did no yeah there was there was scratch damage and real damage and okay. like you would uh you would like you you'd use a machine gun to inflict a whole bunch of scratch damage mm-hmm. and then you'd follow that up with like a shot from a handgun and that would convert all that scratch damage into real damage and so you basically had to like take one life bar down to actually you know access the real life bar to start okay start killing wow it was uh, yeah. complicated and mm. confusing in the way that triace games are yeah the the palladium system was less less i feel less complicated just okay. kind of dumb it was yeah. just basically meant uh, to apply two separate systems of damage to giant robots and other things that were giant mm-hmm. and regular sized people i can <laughs> see it being i don't know if it's necessary but it's probably a good idea hmm. you know to uh have a different way of of 
of uh, uh, tallying that damage. Oh yeah, for sure. It's just like like it just like even as a as a like kid, it seemed dumb that the distinctions was regular and mega, and then it's kind one, of funny. And one that was just like straight up a hundred times more than the other. <laughs> yeah, it was like you know, it's very had... JRPG. Watch those numbers go up. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It's stupid, but I like it. And, and a human would have like maybe like forty SDC in them, mm-hmm. and then like you had a you had the smallest like kind of mech pistol that would in, in, inflict like four MDC, which would basically mean that <laughs> like if you winged a human, they would be like dust or something. <laughs> and and uh, again, the the, the absurdity. Of these like kind of like you know abstracted comparisons of this yeah. is what this does were were kind of like fun to read, and it just like provided a mental framework for for looking at, at all of these like you know like dumb transforming robots that I was so into, mm. um, and and it let me like it made them seem more real. So I'd mm-hmm. pour over these books and when stuff like BattleTech, which I did actually end up playing, in, in well I'll, I'll tell you the story of that uh, mm-hmm. shortly. Um, you end up like kind of engaging with the world and the things in the world outside of the game, uh, especially because you know you're not sitting in front of a computer having these things drawn up for you. So you have to. I'm not not to sound like an old person, like you know, use your imagination to like kind of like create these things. And in fact, this mm-hmm. is what people do in modern gaming. The idea of theory crafting is yeah. referred to a lot when people make um, character builds in RPGs. Yeah. Um, when people like kind of like plan different like builds in online multiplayer games, you're engaging with the rules and like game world uh, in a way out somewhere outside of the game to, mm-hmm. to build up this sort of like you know like while well, you're building a world context in in your own mind for what you're going to engage with and and I find that very satisfying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And as a kid, it's what uh, it's what you do if you didn't get to play these games very much or at all. You'd buy these these rule books and you'd piece things together and you could do them as you were saying in a narrative sense as well by looking at the different factions and they describe their their behaviors and like you know what was it like in this city hmm. and, and you know you're you're building a cultural picture of a world based on like you know stuff you've pieced together and it's a kid's cultural picture but it's still fun <laughs> yeah. to do. I've I've probably mentioned this before hmm. um if not on mic, then to you in another context. Um, when I was, probably when I was about 11 or 12, I had a whole bunch of Appleseed uh, mm-hmm. uh, collected uh, comics uh, by Masamune Shiro. And my absolute favorite one was like the Appleseed Guide to the City, okay. which was, it was by Masamune Shiro, but like it wasn't a narrative. It was just like, basically like this sort of, not quite tour guide, but it was just like this big Bible over the geopolitics of the city, how the districts were laid out, what the technology and the police force was like, hmm. what the different factions were like. Um, and it was all just intricately illustrated and so much text. And I was absolutely in love with that. Hmm. That was that was my favorite of those books. And um, uh, Berserk has one coming out in okay. July, yeah. which, I've, which I've pre-ordered because, I mean, I can only take so much Berserk. I like it, but I can only engage with it so much. Mm-hmm. But if there's like this more broad view of this nasty world where I don't have to engage with like all the chapters of rape, um, yeah, I'm down for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? that, but that I'm all, I'm always up for you know creators taking a step back and you know showing this this broad broader view of this world that they've created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I really enjoy it. the Massimo Shera stuff. Part of why I engaged with his work so much. Ah, he was so good as well. Is yeah, he'd have like 
like kind of like side notes all the time uh, a lot of his like comics were covered with appendices where he yeah. described everything that was in there he was yeah. so obsessive about it yeah and that was wonderful and now he draws oily horse women well <laughs> no he doesn't do that anymore oh does he not he did the oily horse women grease nipple it was a, no that's a fetus song grease nipples it was okay. gal grease was the name of his book <laughs> um, no he's doing a uh, he's doing a manga now okay. uh, it's about a uh, cyborg uh, who happens to be a scantily dressed Lolita. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, whether that's better or worse than ladies with greasy horses, um, I'm I'm not willing to engage with either, to be honest. (laughs) That's just me. I will uh, always treasure uh, his early work. Mm-hmm. Um, Dominion is hilarious and creative. And, Absolutely. And Ghost in the Shell is probably one of the most important works ever, in my uh, weeby opinion. Oh, no, I, I mean, you know, it's a, like, problematic fave, definitely. Mm-hmm. It's like, like I, I, yeah, I, I loved Ghost in the Shell so, so much. It's like, it's it, certain aspects of it, kind of like, you know, but weird but also it still says so much and it says mm-hmm. a lot of things I, it, it's like the neuromancer of, of comics mm. in some ways yeah which sounds like a like a bold statement but i, I really believe like it kind of was mm-hmm. yeah um yes but, i've uh, taken us way off track uh, no but yeah but it's a it's an interesting track that i'm sure uh, a lot of our readers and listeners will probably share <laughs> um so yeah the world building that was just like part of the appeal of these these games and your ability to engage with it um, as we could see, there was that crossover, and the crossover also happened in in the mechanics as well, mm. and is is still happening to this day. If you look at like a, an early game as well, another game that was a- adapted about the same time I discovered its tabletop version was Ogre. If you've heard of Ogre, no, I have not. Okay, so Ogre is a Steve is another Steve Jackson game. It was kind of famous because it was just. They had a world that they built uh, called GEV, which stands for Ground Effect Vehicle. It was just sci-fi, okay. sci-fi vehicle combat. It also had like kind of uh, troops in in small power armor suits, and the main centerpiece, like narratively as well as in terms of gameplay in their world, was this thing called an ogre, and um, it was a giant um, AI-driven tank. And there are different varieties of these things. The idea being that, like, it's this like huge, giant, autonomous, like almost like a land battleship. Um, and the premise of the game Ogre was one person would play the ogre, and another person would play a whole army. And it's this weird sort of like you know one. So we're talking like tabletop evolve here. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, um, it's like a you know one one person like oh it's almost like a horde mode if you're playing the ogre. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of these mechanics are things that you know we see in games like even now. And um, Ogre also was easy to translate because it was more dependent on scenario design than it was on something like AI. Mm -hmm. Because as the Ogre, I mean, this is where it kind of fell down if you were playing as the Ogre. Um, Because you're a big tank. (laughs) You know, you could do a bunch of stuff, but you were one big tank. The other side was like, you know, a whole bunch of units. So it's not the most fun thing to play as the Ogre because Mm. it's just like, I mean, you know, it's fun if you get to stomp over the other guys but it's more about scenario design basically Mm -hmm. where um the gameplay uh for the for the ogre itself is is sort of worked into each of your different settings into the maps so it's like an ai game where the ai you know the, the simplicity of the ai makes design easier in a similar way 
we make lots of zombie games these mm. days because uh, zombies don't have AI. They head blindly towards a target. They have like kind of swarming behaviors that are easily mapped out, uh, you know, with simple rules that you can play on a tabletop game. Mm-hmm. So I liked Ogre because it was a game that worked as a board game in single player because, you know, the ogre is going to do what the ogre does. It's more of a tactical challenge to try and use your limited forces to defeat this giant monster tank. Mm. And, um, yeah, and as I said, it's, it's, um, it, was on, it was on computers back then. It came back to tabletop recently, a few years ago. And, okay. Uh, in full circle is now available on Steam as well. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, I mean, it's a real simple game. I wouldn't like recommend it unless the premise really speaks to you and you really like that specific tactical challenge. Which again, you could get. You know that that's kind of a core challenge that you see in so many other games. There are, there are XCOM scenarios that mm-hmm. play out that way. So. Or yeah, like like sort of battleship raid kind of levels. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I I think it's an interesting idea. Hmm. Um, Ogre is a tabletop game. Doesn't exactly appeal to me because no. it seems like it's very battle focused yeah yeah and completely. that's not entirely what i'm after oh yeah absolutely i mean even even then it was more like sort of an indulgent fantasy uh-huh. for people who probably played serious uh historical um tabletop war games sure and wanted to go like what if we just had a gigantic tank <laughs> <laughs> you know, what if it was like the biggest tank in the world and and i mean that's literally <laughs> what they were thinking and i was like and as an 11 year old i was like screw that historical stuff i just want the giant tank oh yeah no so, i would have been all over it at that age yeah, yeah if, so. I'd, if i heard about it mm-hmm. but um yeah so so that was uh, and it was also one of those pocket box games so mm-hmm. it had that, that, that okay kind of like, like physical appeal to it where it was born um so steve jackson games uh carrying on with with these games kind of i think they sort of like stood at this kind of like crossroads of like your intellectual pursuit as gaming i.e being either computer or tabletop overlapping because they made games in the 90s you must know about hacker of course yeah of course uh i know very very well um Mm -hmm. i remember seeing um the hacker box sets in uh clint's comic book store Mm -hmm. in uh in kansas city Mm -hmm. and um i uh bruce sterling wrote quite a bit Mm -hmm. about uh what happened to poor old steve jackson in the hacker crackdown uh yes he did indeed um for I guess that's far enough in the past that I can no longer expect people who are into video games to know about that. I guess not. Yeah. Huh? I mean, it was a big deal in the early 90s. Yeah, it um, was. This was very, like, when computers were kind of kind of new mm-hmm. um, and the government was having a bit of a... Government and, and media at large was having a bit of a moral panic about mm-hmm. uh, what that all meant. Yeah, um, because, like, just the mention of the word hacking yeah. was was kind of like like a, it was it was an arcane thing to people and all they could see from these uh, Steve Jackson games is that they basically enshrined the a sort of aesthetic and a like idea of a hacker culture that they they had also mythologized to some degree so so under the under Bush senior's administration mm-hmm. in 1990 uh Steve Jackson games were raided by the secret service uh because they thought that they were data pirates mm-hmm. uh and they seized um they seized a lot of their their assets uh they you know they seized all of their computers and and floppy disks and and their assets and they they thought that hacker was a uh like the anarchist cookbook for 
creating computer crimes <laughs> because is... these are just old shitty white men yeah. you know so um it was called operation sun devil I yes believe. that yes. is correct yeah uh so that that was that really mm-hmm. um and yeah. I mean, if anyone needs an idea of how like disconnected it is possible for for governing forces and even people who are supposedly part of security forces that that are so stupid, yeah, they have no idea. They're meant to be defending, like uh, supposedly defending uh, our nations. They they thought that a board game was the instructions on how to you know commit. Like sort of acts of well, yeah. so just remember these people are powerful, but they're incredibly dense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just joyless, joyless old men who probably like listen to Glenn Miller and eat a potato as their hobby. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see that someone's someone's uh, OK Cupid profile. <laughs> like, I like to listen to Glenn Miller and eat a potato. Yeah, um, yeah so. There was a. I'm sorry, hard to go. Like just the absurdity of that is, is hard to step away from. Um, just trying to think of the whitest thing you could do. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, no um, salt. Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, culture's disseminated now in quite a different way, and uh, possibly um, instead of making these like grand mistakes, we make lots of micro mistakes more rapidly. Hmm. But um, uh, yeah, the the. The sort of like the fusion of two types of gaming culture, uh, also seen in a game called Robo Rally. Uh, have you heard of Robo Rally? I do not know Robo Rally. Okay, so Robo Rally was a game where you had to race robots, basically, mm-hmm. um, getting them from one end of a of a map to to another. But you programmed these robots with cards. Okay. So right. you were you know coding in a simple way these these different uh, behaviors into your playing piece and then trying to defeat the other players who were doing something similar and they oh, were like very interesting. obstacles and things and there are other games that that use these mechanics nowadays mm-hmm. but uh, there there were definitely computer games at the time that did exactly the same thing there's a old unix game called x tank i believe mm. where people would basically code ai tanks to fight mm-hmm. each other um, i think more players might relate to the Carnage Heart series of games mm. which uh, appear on uh, like PlayStation platforms where you're basically using these little, like icons to write uh, logic for, for mechs and getting them to fight each other. I mean, you even see these, these mechanics in Dragon Age and famously Final Fantasy XII to some degree. Mm. But um, the idea that you're, you're... Gambit system, yeah, that's yeah. interesting stuff. The idea that you're coding something mm. um, and this is like, you know, coding crossing over into tabletop games, so that's interesting and i think i know about the logo turtle uh, oh yeah yeah <laughs> the little triangle with a thing yeah. on top of it uh triangle in your days it had graduated to an to a uh, pixelated turtle by the wow. time i was using it okay but yeah that <laughs> that was just a joke but uh for the folks at, f- at home who aren't uh familiar with it um there was this uh there's this program logo that was to it was like a drawing program but it was mostly to teach kids code correct or to teach anybody code um i went to this computer course when i was very very little and you had to type in these commands to make this uh triangle or turtle uh draw a line on the screen um by you know you type like go go north 90 turn east go yeah 40 that sort of thing anyway (laughs) yeah i mean it it was like you know you immediately got to see 
the results of your coding on screen which yeah. I think was the whole point of going like hey, if you type this in you'll get to you know you'll get immediate visual results mm-hmm. which was uh, you know pretty cool like it mm-hmm. fascinated me even as a even as a like 10 year old and, mm. and after um, but anyway yeah um, but so things like coding and basically the idea that even a computer game that doesn't appear to have visible rules is actually built on you know a great many rules mm-hmm. even the, the the you know even something like pac-man has which you know appears to be entirely about uh, sort of like stimulus and response in a way is actually in fact based on these different like kind of principles and things responding to action and changes in velocity depending on uh what parts of the screen are touched mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so the thing that appeals about tabletop games is that those rules are far more tangible in a way, and instead, all you know, in a sense, you're dealing with an abstract version of what you're de- you're dealing with in in the video game. Mm. So, you can examine the rule, think about what the rule means, look, like look at the mm. piece and consider its significance. It's a more sedate version in many ways than a computer game often is. They're but, tangible, but they're also tactile, mm-hmm. and you know, you can in the case of a game that has a GM, you know, you can flesh ideas out or make deals with the gm or mm-hmm. ask like what would what if we did this mm-hmm. you know yeah so there there's such an amount of wiggle room there oh yeah rules lawyering yeah and, and the concept <laughs> of that becomes like a, you know was a big thing if you ever did any tabletop gaming mm. where people would argue over what something meant to them or well, they'd you know they'd uh, they'd get upset when they'd engineer the character to be a certain way, of course, and, and the character didn't get to to like be ultimately powerful. And so, I mean, you talk about the idea of people wanting to min max and people being power gamers about their character mm. um, was like definitely a big thing in tabletop as well. Even in role playing games, where mm-hmm. character stats and how powerful your character are are not really the main focus if you think about it it's more narrative mm. but they everybody pe- likes to see those numbers go up though. yeah they really <laughs> do you'd always get like if you were running a, a RPG group um, you'd always get one person who would be like kind of like no I have to have the most powerful and if you like like somehow downgraded their effectiveness in any way you'd really have to like fight that battle <laughs> Just to, to prove something for a, for a narrative case. But. I'm thinking of that tabletop episode of Dexter's Lab. Did you ever see that? Uh, no, I didn't. Where, no. like, Dexter's the GM, and he's, like, this wizard mage, um, wizard mage warrior with a big uh, morning star, and he's just, like, killing off all of his friends and making them mad. And then his, um, his ballet-obsessed little sister takes over as GM and mm. makes him play the bard. Uh, who can't really do anything, and then everybody else has a great time except for him. Hmm. Yeah, God, like like um, GMing stuff is is uh, like it's delicate. Yeah, it's a real it skill. Is, it's it a is, real skill. It is really weird. I did feel. Uh, I mean, I I did like um, in my twenties do a bunch of GMing, and sometimes when you get it to work right with a really disparate group of people, you also feel like you're being their therapist in a way, <laughs> <laughs> which is, is is kind of weird. Um, with the magic of the internet, that's something that I'm thinking about trying out. GMing? Yeah, because, mm. um, you know, part of the reason that I did my master's degree was to overcome my shyness and awkwardness mm-hmm. and, like, being forced to uh, present ideas and argue points. Um, and, God, I feel like I'm just, like, laying my life out as an open book now. But I thought, like, you know, either improv class, which might be a nightmare, mm. or trying to do some basic GMing might um, 
make me feel a little bit more comfortable I think, in my yeah. daily interactions with life. I think um, the really positive thing that came out of GMing, which certainly worked for me in terms of like you know, confidence in social situations, is that if you do it with a regular group mm. and their groups, there are a group of people that you already have some familiarity with mm -hmm. and know, the idea that you're, I mean, like as opposed to improv, there's there's more of a definite sense of everyone of, of like communal support in mm. in GMing people because I mean there's an element of improv there too oh absolutely but but one that I'm more interested in mm -hmm. than... and you can be as funny as, as you want to be when when GMing but your goal is to to make everyone else have a good time mm. and and the idea that you've when everyone mutually succeeds it's just hey we've made we've all made each other feel great mm -hmm. which I think is less competitive than improv sometimes can be mm, mm. so um I, I i find like like you know successful gming and just like well gming where everyone enjoys themselves is a real like positive experience for sure and everyone's reminded of the value uh, of their their social interaction with others in in a way that you know again makes everyone feel good which is a great thing to reinforce mm. um so yeah going away from from uh like gming there uh <clears throat> I was talking about the well. You were saying tact, uh, you know, tactile engagement with game pieces, with rules. Mm. And in the early '90s, something happened that was very key to expanding that appreciation to a great many people. Okay, and that was the popularity of Magic: The Gathering. Yes, the card game. Yes, I had some Magic packs. Um, I just kind of treated it as a as a collectible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I... our school banned them. Uh, oh, right. For the occult reasons? Yes. Okay. Yes. So yeah. you could not bring your magic cards to school. Mm -hmm. um, I was about eight years old. Everybody else was eight. And everybody else was like, oh, Magic the Gathering. And we were all just collecting them and not actually playing. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't it's like pogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was in, I, I was in um, university at the time. Mm -hmm. And, well, by the time I got into them. Mm. Um, but I didn't really play Magic much uh, because I was a goth then and... There was well. Why were you not playing Magic then? Oh well, because there was there was there was the vampire uh, card game. Of course, there was a vampire card game. Of course, there was called vampire. Well, now known as Vampire: The Eternal Struggle, um, and oh, I was like, how, how Nietzschean. Why would I? Why would I not play this when you know, like Magic: The Gathering? It's just not goth enough. And then the Werewolf card game came out, and I liked that one even more. Mm. Uh, but uh, some people may not re recall. But uh, for some reason, they no longer refer to uh, Vampire the Eternal Struggle by its original name, which was Jihad. Oh, really? Yes, it was. I do remember a Jihad card game. Yeah. I didn't realize those it was were one and the same. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, so, spelled with a Y, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I think at the, for, for the longest time, these were the only two collectible card games around. It was Magic the Gathering or Jihad. Uh, they all kind of popped up at once yeah. around the time. There was a Dungeons and Dragons one mm. um, around the same time. Uh, and then maybe like 95 or 96 when the anime home video market started becoming a boom. Yeah. Uh, Annie Mayhem. I had a lot of Annie Mayhem cards. Okay. Did, wasn't that like with the Antarctic Press artwork or something? No. Okay. okay. Uh, it was... Who owned Manny, Annie Mayhem? Because it was just like screenshots from these VHS tapes. Okay, yeah. Uh, with stats laid mm. over them. Let me see. <laughs> yeah, it was Pioneer Animation. Okay. So they were using all their properties that they put out. Mm. 
Yeah, so you had you can have your bubblegum crisis and Tenchi Muyo cards. Okay, yeah. <laughs> make them make them fight. I, I think, so stupid. Yeah, I think I, I had so many. I, I was actually in, so I was at, you know did try and get into playing these games. So mm-hmm. I think some things like like that probably didn't appeal to me because it looked like a weird it was a mashup, mashup of shit. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I I got quite into a game called uh, Shadow Fist, which was based on the Feng Shui um, ro- tabletop role playing game system, mm-hmm. which was. A game that was meant to draw its well, which draw its settings and influences from uh, Hong Kong cinema. Okay, uh, yeah, and, and that was pretty cool because you had like kind of like weird cyborgs and um, like you know gun-toting cops fighting like um, like arcane eunuchs from like the, the China, medieval China and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that was that was actually pretty awesome. Um, as as a setting, it was real fun, but as a as a card game, it was it was pretty fun too. Although a bit simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so th- these were you know fun games you could collect. Uh, the licensed game thing, as you mentioned, became really popular. Mm. Like Star Wars and Star Trek got huge card games simply because you could just convert stills from these properties mm-hmm. into cards. So that's like millions of cards right there. And then of course the Pokemon card game became huge. Yeah, um, something I never really touched. Same here. Yeah, because uh, like I liked I liked Pokemon Blue. Um, and like that, that was about it, really. Yeah, and Pokemon in in some ways feels like a card game as well. Yeah. So I mean, you have your your like kind of selection of of monsters. So yeah. So I was like, well, this experience is close enough, and mm-hmm. I did actually play multiplayer Pokemon with some friends. So I was like, why? I'm not sure why I need this card game. I think that card game kind of took off after I was just like, um older and mm. gothier and yeah, didn't have a whole lot of time same. for it yeah yeah, yeah it, it always like s- seemed to me and this is like probably a broad sweeping statement that, I, that has no contemplation behind it whatsoever that it was like the kids version of magic the gathering and that's absolutely fine yeah which is um, absolutely fine but i was like well then this is therefore not for me mm-hmm. was, was my thinking although whilst i also love the pokemon computer games mm-hmm. um anyway the, the creation of magic the gathering and its popularity it, I think it broadened the, the appreciation of the fact that you can have a simple system. Magic the Gathering's rules are really straightforward and mm-hmm. easy to learn, but the actual complexity of the game is segmented into each card. So you can know the basic rules in, in a few minutes, and then you pick up a card, and it will have all the exceptions, all the specific definitions of what it does on itself mm. in quite a succinct way. So it's that again, it's that sort of like contemplative, like really tactile way of engaging with the systems of a game because mm-hmm. you can go like oh this is you you just you're literally kind of physically connecting the rules on the board in front of you mm. and there's a satisfying sense to that it's like you know putting together card combinations mm-hmm. seeing the rules like kind of like roll over in a way where one the cause and effect of a thing you do having multiple consequences that you get to see play out mm. that's that's something that doesn't always happen in video games unless you're playing with two people who are both familiar with the rules of something you know like 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 a, a good game of street fighter is obviously gonna have mm-hmm. loads of interlocking mechanics but if you're an amateur at street fighter you're button mashing and you don't see really what's going on well apart from the end result segue segue mm-hmm. um if we're going to get literal about the cause and effect of cards mm-hmm. uh there is the tri 
Tricrescendo and Monolith Soft game, uh, Botan Kaitos. Oh, yes. Uh, the uh, GameCube uh, JRPG, uh, which it uses this card battling system where each of your characters has uh, has a deck, uh, and you can, you know, you can swap swap individual cards in and out to each character's individual deck instead of you know instead of equip, equipping them with um weapons and armor you get like increasingly good weapon and armor cards as well as spell cards special attacks um uh food and healing items etc and um at the start of each battle everybody's deck is shuffled uh and then you there's different ways to do combinations um you can each card is numbered and you can you know do it poker style and play like two three four five uh if that happens to if if those if sequential cards happen to um pop up in your uh in your hand Mm -hmm. or do like two pair and that will give a boost Mm -hmm. or you can use two items together to uh create like a third special effect so it's been so long since i've played it i'm trying to i'm trying to think about it uh, think about what it is but i think like you know pair wine with fish (laughs) for like an extra healing boost yeah um Oh, but what kind of wine? Yeah, that's that's imperative. <laughs> yeah. Now, but like you you even make your own wine. Um, one of the more interesting things about Botan Kaitos is that many of the cards have like a transformative property. Mm-hmm. So, um, like you'll you know if you 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 know you start with with milk, which is a uh, healing item, and if you keep that in your inventory for long enough, eventually it becomes moldy milk, mm-hmm. and if you drink that, you get poisoned. And then if you keep if you don't throw that away and you just keep that for longer, it becomes yogurt and then it becomes cheese mm-hmm. and, you know, so on and so forth. So, like, you'll have uh, some grapes, which will then rot and then turn into wine and then turn into vinegar. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, like, you get some, some, like, spare change at the beginning of the game. And if you hold on to that, like, straight to the end, it becomes... Um, coins for the river sticks wow really really fascinating yeah how how they played with these cards and made them transform and how you could use them together yeah i, I think again what you know what you talk about there that like you know you're you're kind of segmenting the rules because if you in a way that's very visible and iconic to the player by mm. putting them onto a card because mm-hmm. lots of you know some games have like food decay mechanics or whatever but it's like a stat changes in your inventory mm-hmm. or like an item changes state it's not quite as distinct and like front and center as it is mm. like hey a card is becoming a different card or yeah something. and I, I think that's the importance of cards in these games and, and that they highlight a mechanic in a way that you go like hey this is you know we instinctively because of our cultural knowledge of things like like playing cards have mm. an idea that ca- a card represents a value that is played mm. and so you're giving it like some kind of like you know, a different significance to something when mm-hmm. you put it on a card, which I think is great and lends itself really well to to video games. You were challenged. You were always challenged to do different things with these cards. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, you you could buy these cards that you could buy these meal cards, uh, which uh, healed you outside of battle, but they were consumable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the challenge was to um, uh, be be choosy in battle and maybe defend a few rounds so you can use an equipped food card which doesn't get consumed mm-hmm. you know so you were sort of balancing uh attack defense and healing all in the fray rather than having to do it and expend resources outside of outside of battle um it's a really interesting system a little bit frustrating very very fun um i never played the sequel i would love for 
those to maybe get a switch port now mm. that nintendo owns monolith yeah i mean that... i think in fact i think namco put those out so maybe they wouldn't mm. but they were cool they were very very cool some very um they got really surreal and fourth wall breaky around the halfway i think i told you that like you fly a ship through a dimensional portal and end up in the 8-bit Tower of Druaga at one point. Okay. It's well, pretty wild. <laughs> right, yeah, so that is definitely drawing so, yeah, the Namco would, stuff. Yeah, right. that would be Namco. Yeah. Well, Namco yeah. put that stuff on, on Switch all the time, so you know, yeah, hopefully yeah. that, that, that enabled them to make a port. I feel bad for having missed out on these games, because oh. I only heard about them when I wasn't really playing on that platform anymore, so it was mm. kind of like... Yeah, I... Again, the the first one came out here pretty late. I ended up importing uh, the the first game, mm. um, thinking that it wouldn't come out here. And then the second game just didn't come out here, so I, I didn't, didn't end up importing that one, as mm. um, import games ran a little funny on my British GameCube. Oh, okay. Like, huh. this, you know, they weren't optimized for PAL, uh, and were kind of... GameCube kind of forced it into PAL. Hmm. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the uh, I was gonna get onto cards in um, in video games yes. in general because yeah, like I said, the Magic, you know, Magic Gathering made this the visibility of this um, increase for everyone, mm-hmm. and it it filtered into games. I mean, there's another GameCube game which uh, I was gonna bring up, which I played. I think I played both of them now. Is this the From Software games? Yeah, Lost, Lost Kingdoms. Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, have not played them. Um, they're pretty basic, mm-hmm. um, but again, it's just like sort of a a nice visualization of of uh, some simple like kind of combat mechanics. Mm. I mean, they were real basic. I think you would literally just like like you know it, like we're talking like Yu Gi Oh kind of like you play a card just for its immediate effect kind mm-hmm. of thing. Okay, but but it. it you know, it was a nice visual flair, and again, letting you see what the you know the effects of these different monsters were. There, there is, there is a, a, a definitely a great satisfaction to the translation of what looks like a static card into something that has an immediate visual effect. That's mm-hmm. one thing that video games really bring to to card-based gaming. Mm. I mean, if you look at something like Hearthstone, which I'm not really going to talk about much here, but because it's just like a Hearthstone is basically Magic the Gathering with uh, computer-aided trappings. So mm-hmm. you play a game like that, and a card can burst into flame. A card can mutate into another card. I mean, there are lots of online card games that now do this, but it's that's you know one of the fun things. Like video pinball, you're adding this sort of like animated life to your static rules. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you take that too far, then you're just playing a video game. But I like that middle ground of of um you know using cards in a way that they that then makes them spring to life yeah and, and that's primarily what the aesthetic of lost kingdoms was it's it's not much of a deep game it was just like it was fun to have that satisfaction mm-hmm. to, to see that unfolding so I, I wouldn't wouldn't super recommend going back to those games mm-hmm. i mean they're, they're they're entertaining they're 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 pretty short as well which okay. is like kind of like a little disappointing at the time Staying on the GameCube kick, I remember how disappointed everybody was with Fantasy Star Online Episode 3. Oh, C-A-R-D. C-A-R-D. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, boy. Uh, my ex-girlfriend bought a copy of that, and yeah. she was, boy, oh, boy, she was not happy. I, I never even touched that. I mean, I, I came late to Fantasy Star Online, so... I don't think it has any of the Fantasy Star Online stuff. I think you're just playing this sort of simple magic clone in the hub against other players. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's... Yeah at least that's what we did and i was like wow this is not the fantasy star online that i know or that mm. i want to engage with 
Yeah, that sounds a bit like a kind of a, you know, like a switch. Like, uh, yeah, like a bit of a con. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's how everybody felt. Making it a big numbered sequel and going like, hey, it's a card game. You guys love card games. Your grandmother said this was the the big thing all the kids loved. (laughs) (laughs) I got you a poker deck. (laughs) I know you like the cards. (laughs) Yeah, so these cards, um, like, they're, they are in everything now. I mean, I did enjoy some of the more detailed exploration of card game rules in games like Metal Gear Acid. Um, Yeah, those were weird games. They were weird. I think they were complicated in the wrong way at times. I liked them, but yeah, they got very frustrating. Yeah, and... um... In my recollection, there was a lot of grinding. Um, There was a lot of grinding. There was a lot of repeat these areas and get your random drops. Mm -hmm. uh, And then maybe you'll have the right cards to take on a boss. Or maybe you won't. Just keep doing it. I I think fundamentally there was a lot of really cool stuff in those games. It just kind of didn't... uh, You know, the grinding was bad. Mm -hmm. Sorry, hay fever, like, full salon. Mm, Yeah, it's Um, it's that time of year here. mm. Um, yeah, the grinding was bad, and uh, the complexity kind of, like, you know, it was fun seeing those characters developed, and I really enjoyed, oh, these Metal Gear characters are, you know, now rendered into cards, because yeah. you're looking at their stats, and again, looking at stats on the card is a fun thing, as we've described, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, um, what sold that game to me mm. was seeing a screenshot that you could get Snatcher and Police Knots cards. Okay, and yeah. I, I spent mean... a lot of time getting those. Mm. Did you? I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the um, and the artwork, of course, you know, seeing those little individual pieces of artwork. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, and that is the other thing about cards. It lets us really fetishize little bits of art and mm-hmm. go, like, wow, look at this. So, so yeah, that was that was a good... I mean, now, um, like, in terms of model exam- modern examples, you look at something like Titanfall, which has burn cards in it. Okay. Where... It's a, it's a multiplayer first person shooter, but you get these cards. They're, they're perks, basically, mm-hmm. but um, they're perks that are played as cards in the deck of cards. It's you know they don't directly relate to the game, but it's almost easier to understand when these individual like kind of rule changes mm-hmm. are given out to you as cards. Speaking of perks, uh, going to go back a bit to uh, a key point of where these systems where RPGs and computer games crossed over and talk about Fallout because okay. uh, we're getting a new Fallout soon kind of yeah, yeah but, um, <laughs> we were talking about this off mic a little bit mm-hmm. um, when you were you yes let's, yeah. let's go go so, ahead so um, the original Fallout game was going mm. to be and back to Steve Jackson as well because mm. it was going to be a game totally based on Steve Jackson's role playing game system GURPS hmm. the um, generic uh, universal role playing system which uh, was basically a standard set of rules um, I think this is pretty much how role playing game systems work these days with like mm-hmm. D20 and stuff you know, yeah. I haven't played any of that recently but at the time it seemed kind of revolutionary that they'd come up with one system and just multiple source books you know kind of trying to corner the market in a way but it was it was a fun idea and very influential mm-hmm. and seeing how you could tailor this one system to all these different settings in in a weird like one system future kind of way you did occasionally get <laughs> <The> globalists <laughs> yeah you did occasionally get um 
other role-playing game systems mm-hmm. releasing source books for GURPS. I was never sure why that happened. Yeah, I guess some kind of tie-in. Yeah. Or like, um, like oh no, they're going to eat us. We better get in on this. Yeah, I guess. It was like, that's interesting. I mean, I guess mm. you could still buy the source books for the other system and then convert stuff to GURPS if you were so in love with GURPS why don't you marry it but um, <laughs> uh, yeah but well GURPS. I mean I'm thinking like cause did Cyberpunk do a tie in with GURPS they did, I yes. think they might have because yeah. like the standard Cyberpunk rules are kind of crazy mm-hmm. and it's like endless dice rolls to determine uh, bullet accuracy oh yeah. Uh, yeah don't you have to roll like five or more times mm. and like that determines whether like you hit somebody in the knee or in the shin oh yeah and it, yeah. it's kind of mind-numbing mm. <laughs> you know yeah yeah that's uh i i think all my cyberpunk games involved so much like sort of um there was so much scheming and uh like social engineering of situations well that that's the much more interesting way to play yeah that there wasn't really much much combat i mean yeah. there was a lot of like decking but uh well that's still yeah. There you go, that's more fun. Yeah, but but like very little like like combat would happen like in like very short bursts. So mm-hmm. we could roll we'd roll tons of dice, but it was like over one like really brief encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um but yeah, the so the GURP system was going to Fallout was going to be the GURPS game. They were like, let's take this this uh you know, then popular role playing system mm-hmm. and adapt it into into a, something that brings these rules and mechanics uh directly to a computer. Um, I did not know this at all until you told me. Yeah, it was. Um, but it makes sense. At the time when I played, when I when I first played Fallout, I was really quite impressed and like you know quite liked the idea that this was a game that seemed. I mean, this was so they didn't end up with a group system, which I'll come to. But I liked how much how close it felt to tabletop role playing. Hmm. Yeah, the action point system really mm. stuck out at me as as being similar to what i what i had been reading about alone in my room yeah and, and taking all the perks as yeah. well because like if you've ever what you know thought about character creation in something like fallout where you select from ranges of perks that's a old mm-hmm. school uh tabletop rpg thing which yeah i always find fascinating especially if you have a system that weighs it against disadvantages that's much more fun yeah yeah because then you you end up creating a character that you know you that forces you to play to limitations but then instantly kind of like creates Oh. And a, a kind of an archetype you've so. created a character you've written a character then you've yeah. given them uh, 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 um, strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. yeah you know inherent so, inherent flaws so so it made the character in fallout seem like more characterful <laughs> <laughs> but uh so so they um they had they were going to use the grow up system and everything was going well they 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 actually the system came first believe it or not and they thought they were looking for games to adapt and they saw Wasteland and they thought let's mm-hmm. do a successor to Wasteland um, using GURPS and I think there's a GURPS Wasteland source book really there might be uh, yeah if we could yeah sorry I should have I should have confirmed that I, I don't know why I didn't make a note of that when I was actually researching this well, maybe there isn't maybe it was like a fan thing I think there is a fan thing okay yeah <clears throat> yeah okay so no no GURPS Wasteland source book but but GURPS was was definitely like the starting point for Fallout, and you can sort of see it in Fallout as well because I think of again of all of any game of its time, role playing as in outside of just the rules mm-hmm. is very important in mm. Fallout in mm. the first two Fallout games. Uh, the 
playing a character it's where fallout 4 falls down so badly oh god yeah i mean it's but anyway yeah we'll get onto that later mm-hmm. or maybe we won't uh <laughs> anyway fallout 1 and 2 yeah um, fallout 1 and 2 they, you know so they, they emphasize role-playing yeah they, they they feel to me like one of the most concerted single-player efforts to adapt tabletop into a computer form hmm. and so, certainly they felt like one of the most developed at the time mm-hmm. and they were all going ahead they made the intro video um the one that plays with um is it maybe or i don't set the want to set the world on fire i can't remember what fallout 1 plays with I do actually remember this intro video off the top of I my head. I think they did well. use I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire, mm. and then that's why Fallout 3 called back to that. Mm. But um, maybe it was Fallout 2. Oh, yeah, that's right. So they, they um, sent this video over to um, Steve Jackson Games, and uh, they rejected it. Mm. Because okay. if you remember that original video, it's pretty grim and brutal. Mm. And although there is violence in role-playing games, I guess the fact that... I mean, I, and we don't know why exactly but the implication is apparently that it was too violent i mean there's a scene of this was this was the mid 90s yeah this was the uh the era of phantasmagoria and pc games trying to outdo each other and mm. being like this ain't your kids console game i mean i yeah i, I think there's there's a uh, someone being shot execution style by, yeah. by two brotherhood of steel soldiers who then like wave cheerily to the camera <laughs> um that that's in there so i, I do remember remember that scene and I think that that uh, tabletop role playing ga- games were trying to shake off a bit of a bad reputation mm-hmm. from all of the moral panics, you know, not undeserved, but mm-hmm. it was still something that hung around them. Mm-hmm. So they obviously didn't want that association, and in the end, Fallout got its own uh, system, mm-hmm. which was definitely inspired by GURPS uh, called Special. There we which, go. Uh, we are now super familiar with and kind of doesn't exist in its original form anyway no but, you know. <laughs> yeah bit of a shame there but um <clears throat> yeah just an example of how these things cross-pollinate mm-hmm. and i mean um, um these games are you know tabletop games had a bit of a, a resurgence mm-hmm. in the early 2000s uh, i think largely thanks to kickstarter i would probably say because you in get the early 2000s okay maybe not because mm, that's Kickstarter is like a 2011 kind of yeah no you're right yeah yeah, yeah sorry I mean well I think there was a slow resurgence of board gaming in the 2000s possibly uh-huh. due, due to production and then crowdfunding really helped board gaming take off oh again. yeah and you, you've got these massive high profile expensive things like uh, the Dark Souls uh, board game mm-hmm uh, the Bloodborne card game. Yeah. Um, I, we, Justina and I, we kickstarted uh, the Devil's Level, the uh, the Share Zone okay. card game, right. where you have to manage your uh, horniness level, depression level, and tired level. Okay. So that's going to be a treat. There, there's the. Have you seen that? That I think it was also kick, a Kickstarter thing. That Consenticles game. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I do remember Consenticles. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd want to play it. Okay. Um, it just seems complicated, but I really, really like the art style. I think yeah. it's really cute and really funny. It's a, it, it was like a, a consensual response to that awful, like, what was it, Tentacle Bento game yeah, that the Penny yeah. Arcade guys were promoting. Do you remember I, that? I, I do, and I wondered if, if there, there was some kind of, like, you know... Yeah, I think this was meant though. to be like, we're going to do this the right way. Mm, good. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. and good. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I really like the idea of Consenticles. Yeah, again, I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't exactly know if I'd play it, but I, I think it's a, like, it, it's cool and sweet i'm glad that people out there are excited for it yeah so, for sure 
so a good article. Yeah, and the art's worth just checking out. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, not everyone obviously was buying into all of these these uh, Kickstarter projects, but they raised the profile of board gaming so much mm. that uh, you know, board gaming is now much more of a thing. I think mm-hmm. in the early two thousands. It was coming back, but more through like systems evol- revolving around collectibles and miniatures. Yeah, stuff like Hero Clicks. Now that I think about it, which I never got into, but they came with you know you you basically got little miniatures that had rotating bases with stats in them. Okay, yeah, I I'm completely unfamiliar with this. Yeah, and that was like, and you'd get them for different like kind of uh, fantasy or even like comic book settings. So they were Marvel and DC Hero Clicks, of course, mm-hmm. which sold to collect. I mean, they had this that they were you know were jumping on the sort of collectible market so people would buy them just for interest in the property i mean i i almost bought a bunch of BattleTech uh like clicks because they were just tiny. why the hell not yeah they're tiny mechs so yeah i'll buy some tiny mechs for sure um so they're they're um board gaming's coming back into style and you get this the modern overlap in in board, board games more contemporarily is games that actually use computer elements in them mm-hmm. well, as in like board games like there's an XCOM board game that uses uh, apps okay. to play um, there was a game that we played at your house that I loved uh, Drop Mix uh, there's Drop Mix yeah okay uh, the Lovecraftian mansion oh game, Mansions it? of Madness Mansions of Madness yeah is incredible mm, it really is yeah um, where you are a team of investigators uh and you are exploring this sort of procedurally generated mansion mm-hmm. and this this app has narration and uh governs encounters with these little miniature creatures mm-hmm. and i think you can probably describe it better than i can uh, you pretty much described it. yeah um <laughs> it, it was a joy it was mm-hmm. a real joy um putting this putting this mansion together kind of like felt like fog of war but it's being generated in front of you and yeah. you can in- investigate things and fight monsters and speak to characters and mm-hmm. um i really really like it and you still have uh you still have the tactile fun of yeah. uh, the little pieces the tiny monsters yeah cards with your stats and like kind of like equipment on them yeah so it, it's combining these two things and and uh the pretty much all of the combat and I don't think there's... A, was there any dice rolling? It's been a while since I played it. Uh, I think the app was c- covering that bit, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the app seemed to... So everything that you... There could be if you wanted to. Yeah, but. everything that, that you'd think of as being like kind of messy accounting was handled by the app. Mm. So it really felt like the best of both worlds for, the, for, mm-hmm. for a board game. And it really made me think that I kind of wish most board games were like this from here mm-hmm. on out. Because, you know, have the physical stuff. And everything that is th- that is just accounting, like push it off to the side to mm. a digital format, and um, like you say, it worked really, really well. Mm. Yeah, we've we've never completed a game of it. We've tried a couple. Oh, uh, I but, mean, uh, oh, you mean we didn't win because we we've, we've played like through until everyone died or something, didn't we? Uh, no, I think like we played until people started having to leave. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. The other the other upside of uh, this game, which. Uh, is partly why we didn't get to finish the games is that they're quite easy to play if you're slightly intoxicated yeah yeah or more than slightly intoxicated we were v- pretty intoxicated yeah I mean I and find... then people had to go get the last train mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I kind of find that if you play a board game it's not I mean and, and I think people should be able to do more stuff without drinking but uh, definitely a, definitely there's a big drinking culture in the UK mm-hmm. and, there uh, is for better or worse yeah. sometimes it's good sometimes it's not great yeah <laughs> And if you want to have a social event that revolves around drinking or involves it at all, 
Uh, more complex tabletop games are harder to pull off mm -hmm. because you just end up losing the you know you, your attention span diminishes or your ability to keep that many factors in your head reduces. Mm -hmm. So, so game, having that app, yeah, yeah, having that app really assists it uh, assists it well. There are there are games that get completely translated to to things like tablet, which mm -hmm. I find really fun to be being able to play like a mm. a two player a two player board game on a tablet or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did uh, Summoner Wars. Yeah, we've done Summoner Wars a few times. I think. We have, yeah, yeah, yeah that was very fun. Yeah, that's like an easy go to of like we're gonna play like this tactical card game mm -hmm. and not have to think about uh, the rules or or messing something up because again the tablet takes care of it for you. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some interesting AR games using tablets coming up, um, or okay. like there's something called Golem Arcana, which has these big uh, sort of like miniature style pieces. So the the your golems, your like miniatures, the cards on the boards are covered in small magnetic dots that you read with a stylus. Okay. That that then transmits transmits their stats to the app. So again, uh -huh. it's bookkeeping taken. Mm -hmm from the pieces and the board and uh, shifted on to an app which includes like a bunch of animation and stuff so mm -hmm. that's a good streamlining streamlining way I, I know that they are AR based uh, board games in development as well where you look through your phone or your tablet and you know you see things animate and effects mm -hmm. happen so there are lots of ways you can like implement these these sort of like meldings of of different game systems mm. You know, which brings us back to the fantasy of board games, I guess. You look at um, the very first Star Wars film, and Chewbacca's playing the game of holographic chess. <laughs> I guess also in the most recent Star Wars film, he does that. Anyway. Um, and it's moving pieces around that come to life. And I think that's that sort of... It's, it's where board games e exist, where we like to fantasize they might exist. This sort of... I didn't want to say hinterland of hinterland of immersion, but that's a terrible. Like I feel like it's well, too, too well, you've you've said it. I've said it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they exist in the kind of hinterland of immersion where <laughs> you're engaging with the fantasy while also engage, engaging with the construction of that fantasy. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's a like you know a fun way to engage with things. And yeah, so I think exploring that kind of difference of how we feel immersed or how we engage is you know something we're doing in new ways right now and um we'll something we'll probably look at uh, later in this episode when we talk about what we've been playing mm -hmm. but i think uh this makes for a decent summation of uh, our experiences with uh, these sorts of games i think so it's and been how they've evolved together it's been uh, it's been very enlightening hmm. so thank you for thank you for taking the lead on this one we'll see you in our next segment okay uh, we'll be back Moving on to our second segment, Alva, what have you been playing since the last time we spoke? Well, I've uh, just started playing a game that uh, you probably have quite a bit of experience with um, and have reviewed recently, I understand. That's uh, Cultist Simulator. That's right. Mm -hmm. Following on from our jag of uh, tabletop influences in games and vice versa, we have both been playing Cultist Simulator. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've not reached the end of a run yet. I haven't. Well, I haven't even died, so... Oh, good for you. Yeah, well, I haven't played it for that long, and I restarted when I first, like, kind of um, wasn't sure how things were going. I so. have restarted a few times. Um, 
but it always continues with mm-hmm. different characters after you die. Anyway, let's talk about what this game is. This is the new game from Weather Factory, uh, which is the new studio from Alexis Kennedy and Lottie Bevan, who mm-hmm. were both at Fail Better and worked on uh, Sunless Sea and Fallen London. In fact, Alexis Kennedy was the co-founder of Fallen London, mm-hmm. who served as, as director on uh, on uh, Sunless Sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a card-based cult simulation game not in the not in the sense of jim jones more in the sense of uh the cult of dagon oh yeah <laughs> yeah like who was that 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 80s guy who wrote all of the uh middle class satanic scare stuff god i can't believe i've his name now yeah jack chick no 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 he no he, he wrote like novels about like you know s- secret middle class occultists oh doing stuff uh a british guy you know if you you picture like if you picture like a man in a you know, like like the kind of people who were like scared of someone like Anton Lavey. What was his oh name? Oh boy! Wow. Um, no, I don't know. It'll come back, and and I'm sure that like listeners who are familiar with this guy know who I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, the kind of like yeah, occultists, conspiracy sort of thing, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of cult. This is very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it you the game is played out on a table uh, mm-hmm. where you have uh, some verb deck spots and some cards and you always start out as an aspirant or an aspirant mm. uh who uh has a hospital job that they don't care about um and soon they start to have mysterious dreams mm. and uh you end up inheriting um some money and some occult literature from a patient who died and then you're ahead on your way you're having to balance studying occult tomes and lore with working so you have enough money to eat and survive Hmm. so there's like timers ticking down and you're managing your resources but also you know spreading what actions you want to take yeah i i found it um interesting from the beginning because of the way it was presented and laid out Mm. uh and again we were just talking in the first segment about how ideas given significance you know made more iconic because they're presented to you on the card mm-hmm. and this is here this is like kind of going like okay here's a card and and uh, they've got little like sort of symbols that go with them depending mm. on what like kind of aspects they represent um also each card will have a, a bit of flavor text on it mm. as well which you know varies they're all worth reading yeah which is it's that great idea of like this capsule bit of narrative you mm-hmm. get with each card where a symbol and a bit of text and you then you 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 have to so the narrative isn't like dealt out to you in a conventional way but you are assembling um an atmosphere and a setting from these little pieces of writing that you're consuming and they're really good pieces of writing oh they are yeah i mean i there is definitely something to be said for this kind of it's almost like it made me think of how how entertaining twitter can be sometimes if you follow the right people <laughs> yeah <laughs> where it's like kind of like i'm gonna consume these tiny pieces of 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 text mm-hmm. that are like to some degree like self-contained so um that was an appealing way to take in lots of writing obviously you see some of these things again and again but then you you draw connections between them whether they're implied or whether they're ones you make yourself there's almost like a kind of like sarcastic darkly comic um take on something like bloodborne to mm-hmm. it yeah. you know you you piece together uh you piece together these little bits of knowledge and they start to form this whole uh of this um sinister collective unconscious mm-hmm. that is uh that permeates your multiple run-throughs hmm. I, i'd love to to hear that because like I, I don't know exactly what it 
keeps from run to run, but I understand that the world is somehow changed in ways that are not apparent. Okay. Um, I know that this game is very, very deep, and there's a lot of stuff that I haven't even discovered, yeah. despite, you know, doing many runs and writing a review. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard this suggested, but mm. I've also been trying to avoid spoilers. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't specifically want to want to exactly know what I don't find out by myself. Mm -hmm. I, I think mechanically, so yeah, it's got the, the, the aspect of cards. I like the idea, again, to do with the fact that everything's rendered into these individual symbols, that you you end up arranging the cards, you know, how you choose, or the, and the verbs on the table in front of you, which means you're sort of like, it becomes a bit like, and you know, suitable for it being a cultist simulator, it becomes a bit like a madman's kind of like, you know, wall, with uh, from a movie where they've made all these conspiratorial mm. connections with red thread sort it, of thing you've got this sociopathic detachment yeah uh as playing as because you're you're not really a good guy in this game mm. uh no matter who you are um even if you like try to follow a uh more just path like if you play one of the you can be an inspector mm. and you can play that straight and just like get a win state by arresting all the other cultists right. but still you've got this uh, detachment where you are moving uh, people and bits of evidence and and lore and everything just around as these you know as these cards mm -hmm. as these you're, yeah. you're boiling them down to these pieces in your grand game yeah. you're, the, you're the chess master and these are your pawns it's a powerful metaphor I yeah think, definitely uh, I mean it works even on, in the smaller details where like the very first like you know when the very first verbs popped up and i realized i was literally taking my health and putting it into my job wasn't <laughs> i kind of like ah oh, that right. is what happens uh so that you know that kind of like you know narrative effect which is which isn't even conveyed by the writing but definitely like you know works it really um it reminded me of um of doing my master's degree at night because mm -hmm. um, you um you know you have to work during the day and then you need to put your your reasoning skill into work to do a good job and not get yelled at. Mm -hmm. And then you might not necessarily have enough reason left to study your tomes at night. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that, that is pretty... Yeah, it, it it's... I mean, the whole thing works as, like, kind of, like, a fun abstraction for what, like, you know, your mental or inter internal processes are yeah. when experiencing these things. And... Um, I, I described it in my review as, like... Uh, um, a metaphor for being a starving artist of, uh, under capitalism, but your art may have world-ending um, ramifications. <laughs> that sounds about right. I think. <laughs> and and I think when any uh, you know anyone who's like a starving artist or working on a PhD or doing something, um, you know, alone and partly academic, mm -hmm. everything probably becomes abstract and detached in that way through isolation and yeah. obsessive focus that that this game conveys pretty darn well. Mm. So. Yeah, it's 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 very hard to compare or think of in the context of a lot of other games, because if you think of like a visual novel and the way that conveys story, it's just like you know it's it's direct narrative. And you think of more mechanics based games, and then and the mechanics there are in service of of mechanical goals. Where this is like a strange, you know, it's a definite narrative through mechanics. Yeah, in, in a in a way that that we don't see see very often and and part of it part of the the engagement with the narrative is also working out what what the game is mm -hmm. because it does it tells you nothing of what the game is there are a lot of like convenience features that would be featured in this if it were a pure card game are not there 
Hmm. Like the ability to sort your cards, for instance, would be a great convenience. I wish that was there. Yeah, but, but I think that it not being there is is probably like deliberate because. Yeah, yeah. I mean they're all about wanting to see individual players table set up mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I've seen that on Twitter the, my complaint I wish you could pick up more than one card at a time mm-hmm. so like if I want to arrange my stat cards um, and I have you know multiple funds I have to click and drag each yeah. individual fund back mm-hmm. into a pile and that's that's annoying I've but. never had that, mu- that many funds where it was a problem but I guess yeah. that's something that develops over time <laughs> so yeah against you, you, thinking... you have not played as the rich layabout now. <laughs> oh, okay see I want to try that now though yeah. it's, it, it, <laughs> it sounds so, the mechanical differences of taking these different paths like you know shown them this way sounds mm-hmm. sounds fascinating to me and I I want to experience it but it's not again it's not a conventional game the payoffs are are discovery and understanding uh, in a way that you might not get from other games, so mm. so it's it you know I it's curious kind of appeal. I think if the idea itself that we're describing appeals, then that's probably the game for you. But uh, mm-hmm. or you know if you're just like uncovering a mystery, um, it's yeah, mm. it's very opaque, but it's in service to weather factory's desire for players to learn by doing and mm. experiment, um, and. Although although we have both restarted a few times, uh, it really it encourages you to keep going. Mm. And then when you're playing as a different character, they have their own um, you know cards that are unique to them mm-hmm. uh, that you will pursue your goals in different ways. Mm. And you know you can eventually you can go back to being an aspirant mm-hmm. um, when that option comes up. But like you learn a little bit more through these different angles, and then. You kind of piece them together, mm. much like these little lore fragments that you piece together from these individual cards. Yeah, I I think it sounds like like I didn't play a lot of it, but Fallen London, um, at least when it first came out, which has gotten a big facelift apparently. Yeah, so I'm I'm gonna have to check that out. I, I mean, when when I first tried it, it was called, still called Echo Bazaar. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there's a weird relation between that and Culture Simulator, obviously with the like you know like shared creator, but, yeah. Um, Fallen London felt more like the fact that it was a multiplayer online game mm-hmm. meant that the narrative had to be like custom made in a way that suited the the timers and the you know the timers and the the stats that were part of it being a multiplayer game yeah that we you know sort of like gamifying a narrative was done in I think in in you know, in a very interesting and and um kind of like unique in, in well in a very unique way for Fallen London and I think what Culture Simulator seems like in comparison is they're really going into that sort of like you know how is how do we make a mechanical narrative that is also a written narrative mm-hmm. they're, they're taking it sort of further than you could with something that was multiplayer like, like Fallen London mm. so, so that's like yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a exciting evolution of that idea mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Mm. yeah I it's it's something that I'm going to keep playing mm-hmm. um to see all the weird little secrets that it's hiding. And I don't necessarily want to see all the secrets because I, you know, I'm not going to be looking at a wiki or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I kind of just want to, you know, I want it to be this sort of inscrutable eldritch thing, mm-hmm. same, same here. And <laughs> um, which really, is the point. It really has the feeling of such a mm-hmm. thing, which, uh, which in itself is like, that's pretty damn impressive. I like stuff that has a, a mysterious puzzle box feel. Mm. Um, there's, 
not at all a similar game, uh, but the series of the Room games mm. on on um, iOS and the I puzzle think box now on games, Steam. Right? Yeah, they, yeah, they are literally you are literally manipulating an intricate puzzle puzzle box in those games. Mm-hmm. And I loved those games for the like for the physical construction of of the objects they presented, mm. um, and that was wonderful to engage with. But like there there are three of those games now, and by the I mean the first game is is I would recommend it unreservedly to anyone. Okay. Um, the by the third game it's kind of like there's no more mystery. You've just right. made a cool thing. It's like <laughs> you know. Um, so it's hard to find that actual sense of like mystery and discovery. Mm-hmm. I mean you know playing. Playing Bloodborne for the first time, mm. like had bits of that for like, sure as well. And the game that's like based wholly around that is is like it's it's so satisfying. So absolutely, I've, I've, I'm only a few hours in, but really enjoying it. Feels very uh, feels like they're taking a big risk, mm-hmm. um, and I'm I'm very glad to see that it's uh, seems to be doing very very well. Mm. Oh, it's been on the front page of Steam for a couple of weeks now. That so is really good. Yeah, really happy for those guys. Yeah, I'm 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 glad to know that this kind of game uh has an appeal oh yeah as well so that's that's really really warms my heart um mm. so uh playing anything else much uh yeah um i have been i I, a, I know that we're a little bit conscious of time uh and i know that you want to talk about battle tech i will briefly say um i love the summer doldrums because i can catch up on all the games that i haven't been playing or that i should have been playing or that maybe necessarily aren't essential that I play, but I kind of want to anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been putting a lot of time into Mad Max. Okay. Um, weirdly enough, right. uh, which it, it's an yeah, it's it's an Assassin's Creed ass game mm-hmm. um, made by made by um, Avalanche. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm in two minds of this game. I remember okay. when you bought it, you were sharing screenshots of how beautiful its skybox was, mm-hmm. and that is a big thing for me as mm-hmm. well. That game has a of a skybox and a really wonderful is. photo mode yeah. um the weather across the different areas of the desert oh like yeah subtle change in atmosphere as you go from place to place getting stuck in a storm yeah uh, which i have a number of times mm-hmm. i think those sequences go on for maybe a little bit too long mm-hmm. uh but i they're always exciting um this game is not necessarily very fun to play. No. Um, it's uh, driving is fun, but mm. the tasks that they ask you to do are very repetitive and they don't feel very rewarding. Mm. Um, and yet, like I'm getting some kind of strange satisfaction um, out of taking you know taking these things off my to do list in so a way that I. I didn't in Far Cry Five. Mm. Um, and I think maybe that is um, just because of this big awful wasteland mm-hmm. that i'm driving through um yeah. so yeah i think it's just like a very very much an aesthetic attraction um that mad max has has pulled me towards it um but what i've realized what my biggest problem with it is and what i hope you know something like the recent footage and promotion that we've seen around the upcoming rage 2 mm-hmm. uh by the same studio uh the Mad Max game is very dour and yeah. po-faced mm-hmm. in a way that the movies never were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want I want the gay boy berserkers and the smegma crazies, mm-hmm. um, which you know I which I mentioned to you would be the best name for a Stella Creasy drag queen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I want I want the gay boy berserkers. I want the smegma crazies, and this game does not have any of that. Mm-hmm. It has some palette swapped men in gimp masks and some very dour 
uh, a very dour dialogue between characters. Um, and I mean, it was, it was in, it was in production far before Fury Road came out. So you, you can't expect all of the charm that was in Fury Road, but I also, I get the impression that maybe a publisher as conservative and protective as their IPs as Warner brothers was purposely like holding them back. Mm. I wonder you know yeah i mean like you think of how like kind of sort of anodyne stuff like shadow of mordor is and, in terms of yeah yeah and also like i had a friend who uh a, f- a friend of mine uh did a i'm not going to name them a friend of mine did some promotional work for uh shadow of war and they were hit by like the most uh draconic arcane um rules of what they could and could not uh, say hmm. um, about Tolkien's uh, characters and world, even if they didn't necessarily relate to the game. Oh, okay. Huh. Yeah, so I could see them being a bit uh, protective, let's say. Hmm. So, like, I wonder if they thought, hmm, yeah, uh, Wasteland, bad future, but, you know, the stuff that really makes the Mad Max setting pop, they just. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, because there, there, there are bits in that game where it's like, I'm like, oh, you could, you were going for it being a bit weird and 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 like funny, but then it's only just like the suggestion of it. Yeah, know, like the mechanic guy is kind of like he's like <laughs> he's like the only good character. Yeah, yeah, but he's like you know he's like kind of like oh you're a bit zany or something and like yeah and like it's like oh you're gonna give silly names to the warlords and then yeah not enough don't really lean into that much actually yeah so so yeah none of that stuff yeah so i think that's my my issue it's a beautiful game that lacks the character and the appeal of what mad makes mad max special i i mean i played it a lot because an excuse to dwell in and explore that world Mm -hmm. it was like Mm. i like those those outposts are so so boring oh god (laughs) but it's like but i'd be like well that's another reason to drive across this landscape heck yeah And, and that so you know it's like open world games you're motivated to be in the world and you, mm-hmm. you, you take their reasons for being there mm. and it's a beautiful world and you know your journeys are tri- you know are trivial but they've got some weight to them so mm-hmm. yeah you know that, that, that can be playing for about 20 hours which is quite a lot I just mm. yeah I just I do keep wanting to go back just to, to see more of because like also I didn't do many of those convoys and they're like the best part of, of the game oh yeah I hated them at first and now I've kind of figured out how you're supposed to do them and yeah. I'm having a pretty good time chasing those down yeah I, I was like like rationing them out to myself because mm-hmm. for a Mad Max game there's not enough car stuff in that game which is so infuriating yeah <laughs> it's like so and much the races are really bad yeah I guess they are but I just wanted to do stuff in those cars because I like yeah just driving around and like driving off cliffs and boosting and hearing Chum Bucket get upset is <laughs> that's very fun <laughs> yeah it really is yeah yeah Hmm. Um, but uh, I've been playing something else which you just mentioned which is Battletech yes yes and uh, this once again ties into the theme of today's episode mm-hmm. uh, because Battletech was pretty much the first tabletop strategy game that I played mm. and so as a result I am very very familiar with the rules and, and basic uh, kind of you know the the principles of this game the, the things that are important um before we go further mm. i think we should probably mention um just you know just to get ahead of it the uh allegations that came out against 
designer Tyler Carpenter. Oh. And I say allegations. He yeah. is cop to them. Yeah, um, so they're not allegations. Yeah, yeah, they're not allegations. They are uh, things that uh, designer Tyler Carpenter did uh, when working at Harebrain Schemes. Um, lots of um, sexual harassment, uh, which he has admitted to, and he has left. Um, obviously, um, this is not a... Well, it's a systemic issue on a bigger scale, mm -hmm. but um, I don't... I would hope that harebrained schemes aren't culpable. It sounds like they are not. Obviously, this is a big game made up of many, many people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're just throwing that out there that we are aware of. Uh, we are aware of his mis misdoings. Is yeah. that a word? And it's definitely it's definitely important for it to be visible. Yeah. Think, yeah. So. We are. Uh, yeah. So we're just. Yeah. Acknowledging I, that. Yeah. Acknowledge. I don't want to go into that. Yeah. Into that. Like that. Right now, but I do also. Think no, let's not. Yeah, I just I, wanted to get ahead of it. Yeah, yeah, getting ahead of it's good. I did also think that, like, in terms of like, you know, more people, like, I'm glad it's a disgusting thing that happened. I am glad that it was taken care of in a way where he got mm -hmm. fired and he acknowledged what he did, as opposed to people like being awful about yeah. about uh, trying to, well, you know, like weasel their way out of things. Absolutely. And so. Nothing about that is admirable, but uh, that's how things should go, I mm -hmm. believe. Um, anyway, yeah, Battle back Tech, to the game. good game. Back to the game itself. <laughs> yes, it is a, uh, well, like, I guess I'm going to start uh, with, you know, my personal experience of Battletech. Please. And uh, it's a game, I, it's hard for me to have an unbiased view of this game because it was so such a big part of, of me growing up into mm. gaming and tabletop gaming. I was buying the supplements and books and uh, even the miniatures and boards uh, before I was able to play them, um, before I found anyone to play with. I did eventually find a schoolmate who was pretty into Belltech, so we did play together, but it was just like two of us. Um, and I eventually found out that there was a sort of Battletech league going on. This was when I was in Singapore. Ooh. Um, I was about 11 at the time, and I looked at this bulletin board and... Um, in this sort of like park area with all these like tables where people would sometimes play chess people would come and play Battletech on weekends and I went there and I found th this uh, fascinating community of people who are mostly um, young members of the military officers clubs <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> who were okay get who were getting into um, uh, who because of their interest in I guess military strategy and tactics um, liked playing um, board games, and they were all super into Battletech. It's like an early version of what Call of Duty is trying to do now. <laughs> or rather, how the military in America is trying to capitalize on Call of Duty. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this, this wasn't like a like a, like a a sanctioned thing. This was just, you know, people's... Of um, course, of course not. People's weekend activities. But uh, they welcomed me into their, 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 their league, and I played with them, and it was like this weird experience of playing with lots of... I mean, they, they were relatively young, so... Mm. And then there were. But you were the youngest by, yeah. by, by quite a big margin. It sounds like definitely. I think yeah. I looked older than than I was as well. So that that nobody asked me how old I was. <laughs> um, I looked elderly, older. I was like you know ethnically different enough for everyone, so they weren't sure. So it's like yeah, whatever. Uh -huh. And um, other other like teenagers joined the group as well eventually. And I was always the worst at Battletech, which kind of, like, everyone was nice and supportive, but I was really... You're rolling in, hustling these guys, convincing them that you're an adult, and then yeah. just losing. <laughs> and losing badly, repeatedly. And they'd get all these new rules, revisions would come along, and I'd be like, this is going to be the one that makes me 
kind of able to hold my own and i'd be like nope i'm rubbish at this as well <laughs> so so that was my experience with Belltech. so it made me particularly long for a computer version of this right. game where i wouldn't just be mercilessly defeated by everyone <laughs> um, i painted a lot of, a lot of nice miniatures though mm-hmm. um and it leads me to modern day Battletech um on uh, on steam I don't know if it's coming to any other formats. I wonder mm, if it might not. I don't think so. Yeah, it, it's been kind of demanding on systems, apparently. Yeah, more, I could definitely not run it. Slightly more proportionally than it should be for what it does. Mm-hmm. Although it is... I Because I spend a lot of time playing the MechWarrior games, the like you know real-time 3D action games, the fact that Battletech is pretty much largely a faithful uh, translation of the board game, but with a 3D camera, Yeah, is... It, it, like you, you know. At first, I I thought, well, maybe I'm not as excited about this as I am about like a new Mech Warrior game, of which there is one coming, and I am pretty excited about. Mm. Um, but it turns out that the thoughtful pace of dealing with these mechs fighting is like a you know different experience, and it still feels like you know it still feels like a simulation because mm-hmm. you're simulating all of these different like systems, which, thanks to my experience, I happen to be quite familiar with. So. I think it might be a bit bewildering to a new player to go like, oh, what's a PPC good for? Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's a PPC. It's like, I know what these are for. <laughs> they're, they're rubbish, but they seem cool, and I would use them too much when I was a kid. Um, but uh, yeah, now now I'm not going to go overboard with PPCs. Um, so that, so maybe I've learned something. Should, should I even ask what that means? Uh, PPCs are... Uh, Particle, particle projection cannon. Oh, okay. So it's just like it fires. Sounds fire, very they, anime. They, uh, they fire big lightning bolts of, uh-huh. of plasma or things. It's like a laser, but more powerful. Hmm. Um, so the thing about BattleTech, though, which makes me wonder about how much I'd recommend it to someone, especially someone who wasn't super into like strategy or tactical games, is that it is faithful and it's faithful in a way which makes me think hmm what were the original issues with Battletech as a board game Uh, because it was popular for a while but it wasn't really the biggest thing eventually Mm -hmm. the thing about Battletech is you're not controlling even the smallest of mechs that you control is still a huge building sized thing we're not talking like about you know super robot sized but they're they're pretty big and heavy Mm -hmm. like a couple of tanks standing up and it means that their main strength is just that they're they're covered in thick armor um, and you know can have loads of weapons on them, even with the smaller ones. So battles are always these like wars of attrition. The bigger your mechs, the more armor they have. And you're picking out these weapons to shoot at a large lumbering thing, but it's covered in armor that will that you have to chip away at. So the middle part of a battle tech match, I mean it's it's about like trying to find the right position so you can concentrate your fire but also wearing down these heavy layers of armor on your opponent possibly knocking them down if you hit them enough and you unsteady them so there are a lot of factors taken into account but like a bit of an inbuilt sort of grind Mm. where like you know you fire something like a small laser which is literally the smallest laser you can equip at an assault mech which is a hundred ton monstrosity (laughs) and that's going to do like four points of damage of course to this huge Ta-da. thing so so yeah um, hmm. so you were going to say something no, no I was okay. not I'm yeah. just listening to you <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so if you're not quite into watching these behemoths kind of like face off, and, and like you know, again, there are tactics like you know to like getting your your the best focus of of things. The the battles can seem slow. I mean, mm-hmm. because they kind of are sometimes, and and in parts, like you know, you can make a dramatic turn because they take a long time to play out, given you know the attrition involved. But there is always going to be these moments of two guys facing off and you're just like hoping chance goes in your favor mm. i mean there's the fascination of am i going to punch it puncture through his armor in the right spot that sets off his ammo reserves that then blows up some <laughs> piece of eternal equipment and that's exciting mm. it's like a constant kind of like gamble but there's a slow build up to these like high points of tension i think i have some time for that i think i'd have to be in the right uh, mood and frame of mind oh, yeah. like I'm kind of reminded of Ring of Red which is a fascinating game mm. um, or like even just um, it seems like a more um, highly uh, variable based take on something like Front Mission mm-hmm. yeah yeah there are way more variables in this than Front mm-hmm. Mission yeah and again like the Front Mission is pretty basic yeah yeah and again the the amount of damage you can take mm-hmm. is like you know much higher than than it is in front mission mm. but the possibility of things going wrong and I, I guess that's the thing with with like modern strategy games it's things going wrong in an interesting way and mm-hmm. that can definitely happen in BattleTech although they do result in in explosions a lot of the time uh-huh. but yeah. um, the out of combat gameplay that comes from things like salvaging what's left of your opponents makes the detail you know the detail in which destruction is resolved becomes more of a thing because then economically you're thinking oh am i gonna get a cool weapon out of this guy oh, am i gonna get a, okay am i gonna get an entire mech because i managed refurbish yeah like or because i managed to just say kill the pilot without harming his mech which is so like, there, there's a challenge to focus on that type of if you so desire if you so this well i mean you're kind of driven to do it because you're running a small mercenary company that right. you can barely afford to keep going uh, which is in itself another exciting like mm-hmm. out of combat part of the game but um the way combat works is it's very very hard to make cold shots so it is always going to be a gamble you're never going to be able to like i'm going to go for headshots i mean mm-hmm. like there'll be situations where you can make a cold shot but it's they're so rare and your chances of hitting are so low that you can't rely on oh, i'm just going to take everyone's head out that's right. not that's not the choice you can make it's it's like a it's a circumstance you can hope for, um, mm, but again that's tense. Yeah, that that tension is really exciting, and it's a it's something that is unique to this game. Um, and if you're in a mood for it, it's great. But uh, it can be ponderous if you're not. Mm. Mm. No, no, it sounds really good. Um, as I said, I won't be able to run it. Um, I'll have to have to have a peek at it at your house at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll, to, I'll, I'll have to see it what it's all about. Yeah, cool. Sure. I'm conscious of the time. You've got to go to work. Uh, I do, Bummer. unfortunately. Um, I have to go and operate uh, some other kind of a large, unwieldy machine. Well, you know, in Japan, it would be classified as a mech. Um, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, is a small, compact car mecha? It is, according to Mecha Otaku. Okay, all right. So I'll remember that. There we go. Folks, you know where to find us. We are on Twitter, at Misanthropay. Uh, if you haven't checked out my new show, Misspent Youth, yet, please do. That's also on misanthropop.com. Mm. Alva, you are on Twitter now. Uh, I am on uh, Vinomatic. And I'm on Twitter, at Misanthropob. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, we will be back in the near future. Hopefully, we'll get back onto a regular schedule. I would like to. Um, 
but uh, keep we'll keep you posted. So uh, until next time, we look forward to you hearing us again.